This is attorney Andy Markintel and attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the attorneys for freedom, and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going, Mark? Things are great, man. I wish I was there in the brand new studio with you to uh, sort of christen the thing with our first show, but I guess we're going to have to wait till next week. Well, I am in the process of christening it right now. I'm in here with our audio engineer, and I got to tell you, man, that's the first thing I wanted to talk about is how beautiful this new studio is. It's actually pretty incredible. I walked in here. I just saw it for the first time about five minutes ago when I walked in the door, and I heard that they had been working on it and it was completed. You're going to be blown away, man. Really? It's beautiful. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, I want to I want to definitely get some guests in studio and have some hard conversations with people about interesting topics. So, yeah, I'm totally pumped up about it. And you're uh, appearing from Honolulu, Hawaii right now, our Hawaii office. I'm over here in Chandler, Arizona. How is it over there in Hawaii, man? Does it stack up to Arizona summer that I'm currently experiencing the beginning of? You know what, man? I'm totally suffering here. It's uh, it's 81 degrees and perfectly sunny, and I'm looking at the beautiful Pacific Ocean right now, and uh, my view is obscured a little bit by all these gorgeous pine trees and green everything all around me and mountains everywhere. So, yeah, I'm suffering through it. I'm well, managing. We, but we all feel horrible. Yeah, we, we all feel horrible for you, Mark, really. Um, but uh, speaking of guests and good conversations, let's christen this studio with uh, uh, we have Ken Schoolin, who is a professor. He's an economics professor at Hawaii Pacific University, which is a private university on Oahu. And he's here. Uh, I've met him. I've he's uh, hosted us uh, at his house before, where his wife cooked a delicious, uh, authentic Chinese meal. And in fact, speaking of his wife, she's already been a prior guest on this podcast, and he's got a big act to follow because that was one of my favorite podcast. So no pressure, but Ken, how's it going, sir? <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, that's the perfect entry. <laughs> that's why I married her. I, I was blown away right away by all of her uh, stories about China under the Cultural Revolution. I started her off by, when we first got together, I thought, well, I'll introduce her to Ayn Rand, but I'd let her give her a copy of Anthem. And after going through that, she says, so what's the big deal? That's exactly what I lived in. <laughs> wow. Can you uh, start by kind of introducing yourselves to the listeners? Tell them a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, I'm uh, My name is Ken Schooland. As you mentioned, I'm a, a associate professor of economics at Hawaii Pacific University and also director of the Entrepreneurship Center. Um, I uh, long ago... Uh, you know, went to school in D.C. and worked in D.C. for a while as an international economist. And then uh, um, the free market really got to me and I, I couldn't stand the bureaucracy anymore and left. I uh, went to teach out in Alaska at Sitka um, at Sheldon Jackson College in Sitka, Alaska for several years and then uh, came to Hawaii. I also taught in uh, Japan for a while. And I'm uh, formerly president of the Liberty International uh, chairperson of the Libertarian Party of Hawaii for uh, uh, a few years, ran for office a couple times, uh, wrote a book that uh, I think has got most of my attention these days. It's a book called The Adventures of Jonathan Gullible, a free market odyssey that's published now in uh, 55 languages. We have theater and productions and radio and uh, musicals, even relating to free market ideas in a friendly sort of way, uh, unlike the usual academic tomes. It tries to get around the censors and give people a humorous view of what government policies can be like. And uh, so I've, uh, I'm delighted to have met Mark. I met him years ago in, in Arizona, and I thought, here's a super champion of uh, freedom from the legal point of view, and that's that's probably one of the most effective ways, probably more effective than libertarians in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, you know, running for public office because uh, challenging the legal constraints, uh, legal issues is, uh, can be much, much more effective. Being with Liberty International for the past, uh, well, 30 years or 30, more than that, uh, we have conferences in, in uh, well, in a different country each time. And we have a lot of summer camps. Uh, my daughter and my wife and I have uh, also taught at these camps. My wife, as you know, she's uh, uh, organized seminars for free market ec 
scholars in uh, Shenyang at Northeastern University for 10 years in a row. I've been teaching at uh, in Mongolia. I don't know. I suppose I've probably uh, spoken in the past five years at 120 presentations in 25 countries. So I get around with uh, Liberty International. It's been a great way of, of connecting a lot of libertarians all around the world. Yeah, Ken, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about Liberty International? It used to have a different name, and also about the upcoming conference. Yes, good. Uh, Liberty International used to be called the International Society for Individual Liberty. Prior to that, it was called Libertarian International, and they merged with uh, Students for Individual Liberty to form ISIL. But ISIL got uh, it was a kind of acronym that was taken over by that terrorist group in the Middle East, so... We were getting hacked all the time, people mistaking us for a terrorist group, so we changed our name to Liberty International. Um, and they're holding a conference uh, this summer in Colombia, Medellin, Colombia. Uh, we should have a couple hundred uh, champions of liberty from all over the world uh, there to meet and, and share ideas about government alternatives to, I mean, uh, private alternatives to government uh, problems. And, um, I, well, we... I would urge everybody to come if you can, um, despite whatever the constraints there are with with the lockdown. I think it promises to be a very lively event. Um, and also, uh, we've, we've been doing this for a long time. And I'm also working with the Language and Liberty Institute that was founded by um, a few friends in Lithuania years and years ago to introduce young people to free market ideas through the study of English and then liberty literature and this has been going on now it's uh, probably in a couple dozen countries uh annually um and uh it's been very very successful at reaching out and i that's essentially why i've tried this new approach with my book the adventures of jonathan gullible because too often uh the literature seems to be very academic very dry uh, i was doing some radio commentary and and nobody was paying any attention as, you know, no one wants to listen to an economist pontificate. So I got into this sort of Gulliver's Travels type of dialogue with a, a girlfriend that I had way back then. And uh, and uh, there was a lot of humor in it, uh, satire, and there was a, a big interest that perked up all around. So I found a whole new way of expressing libertarian ideas, philosophy, and free market economics. Um, um, I just mocking the the tyrants. One of my favorite books is one called Hammer and Tickle, Jokes That Brought Down the Soviet Union. Um, and it, it really shows the tyrants uh, really have almost no defense against satire and mockery. And they hate, they hate it the most because it most more undermines their authority than anything else. And that's why throughout history, satire and humor have been very, very effective at tyrants and in getting around the censors. Yeah, I remember the the, the um when the guy in China uh, banned all references to Winnie the Pooh because they said that he looked like Winnie the Pooh and his response to that was ma- banning all references to Winnie the Pooh and making it illegal and punishable for prison for referencing Winnie the Pooh. That was his response to satire <laughs> and mockery. That's right. That's uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, has that sort of shape, Winnie Pooh the shape, and <laughs> instead of talking about him directly, which was forbidden, they just always said Winnie the Pooh, and then they he got on, they caught on to the point, you know. Well, that's that's true, and that's what Stalin was doing. Stalin would put somebody in prison for telling a joke about him uh, for twenty five years, and then ten years for uh, for laughing at the joke, and five years for for not reporting somebody who laughed at the joke. So that became the uh, the butt of a lot of jokes as well. But, you know, in addition... You know, I, I, oh, I'm sorry, Mark. Just real quick, I think uh, in, in addition... Go I, oh, go ahead, Mark. No, 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 go. I, I think it's great that, um, you know, with your book, Adventures of Jonathan Gullible, which, by the way, I was lucky enough to get a signed copy of when I came, uh, and you guys graciously hosted us for dinner, and I thank you for that. I did really enjoy it. But, you know, I really love that approach of using humor to communicate these ideas in kind of an unorthodox, more approachable way to to spread these ideas, these important ideas. I think about um, Walter Block, who we've had on the podcast now twice, 
um, who's the economics professor uh, from Loyola University. And uh, he wrote uh, to, to kind of talk about these free market principles, uh, which is normally a very dry discussion and a tough topic to keep people engaged on. He approached it with this idea of, okay, I'm going to write a book called Defending the Undefendables, and I'm going to kind of almost humorously talk about these people who we normally consider total scumbags, but I'm going to explain why free market principles can justify uh, having these people in our society. And it's engaging and humorous and everything like that. And because it's written in a different way, because it is presented in a way that isn't just dry economics or dry capitalism or dry libertarianism, the ideas tend to stick more and people find them more engaging. And uh, I think that's one of the big things that our movement um, the uh, Live and Let Live movement that we're getting off the ground is trying to correct about a lot of these traditional freedom movements. So I definitely appreciate that you're trying to take a new kind of more engaging approach to these uh, topics. Yeah, Andy, yeah. I was going to say, I was going to make exactly the same point that you just made, Andy. I think that Live and Let Live is an effort to do exactly the same thing because, um, yeah, we can bring economists on who can talk about the why um, having a free market, having a market that is compatible with the concepts that we put forth in Live and Let Live, raises standards of living. And, you know, Ken could go through and probably diagram that for us uh, in economic terms, how that works. But the average person doesn't really understand that. It doesn't, it doesn't communicate well. And so I think that's a huge part of what we're trying to do with Live and Let Live, because you may have the greatest message ever, but if you can't communicate it to other people in a way that they can understand and accept, forget it. It, it is of no consequence. You may as well be saying nothing. So I also applaud you for what you're doing, Ken. Um, I think it's in line with what Live and Let Live is about. I know you're one of the early people involved in Live and Let Live as well, and this is sort of an effort to um, make the message simple and also update it and upgrade it and turn it into a peace movement and do it as a global thing and add some aspirational values, some things that really should be done because we're not just talking about trying to change the law. We're trying to get people to change their hearts and minds too. If we're ever going to get to peace, we need more than just the law. Oh, that's right. I, uh, by the way, I wanted to mention that I, it was at uh, one of our conferences of Liberty International in Norway that I first met Walter Block, and I really, really admire him. I think he's one of the greatest minds in the liberty movement. Uh, but on this point about live and let live, yes, I think that often people forget that before Adam Smith wrote uh, on the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, his prior book and his claim to fame which is almost forgotten now, is the theory of moral sentiments about the benevolent impulses of human beings. And that's what set the stage for him to then go on to this other uh, free market tome. And I think that that is what the live and let live principle that Mark has been developing uh, really has to show. It's to, to turn it back around and say, okay, now, yes, we can explain what the benefits of the free market are, but this is why it has such a positive impact in society, um, because people can let loose uh, all of their better impulses. So I, I, I really think that this is uh, Mark is onto something here. Yeah, and I, I don't look at it as um, you know something I came up with at all. I think it's something that you know we as a group of people who want to get to a free society and a free world and actually do better than that and get to peace, right? And so I think it's, I've said it many times, I think it's the most important project in the entire world. Um, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, we're associating with people like you, Ken, and people like Walter Block and other people around the world. I, I haven't even announced this yet formally, but it looks like we're going to have a new uh, Live and Let Live chapter in Portugal here soon. And so I'm really excited about that as well. And uh, we haven't even kicked off the movement yet, which is really exciting because people are wanting to sign up and start chapters and get going. And uh, we're not even planning to really kick this thing off until 2023, early 2023, 
And the reason for that is we, you know, it's a serious effort to try to put on a global peace movement, and we want to make sure everything is right. We want to have the website up and running and have good, the best possible videos on that and some chapters underway and some things happening so we can really gear up and do a nice uh, kickoff for the movement, which we are going to do in Honolulu in probably um, early March, sometime in March, I think March 1st is going to be the first official um, international live and let live day, which is going to be really exciting. We're planning to take that day and have people really focus on the live part of live and let live. Go out and live your life and do something fun and take a picture of yourself and, you know, living, enjoying your life and being glad you're on the planet and alive and all that. We're going to take the best of those pictures and put them up on the liveandletlive.org website to celebrate and uh, sort of memorialize Live and Let Live, International Live and Let Live Day, which is going to be an annual event. So I'm really excited about that as well. Great. That sounds terrific. So, Ken, I wanted to move into an area that I know that you've been very involved in, and it um, it's just sort of a microcosm little issue about what's what's wrong economically with the world. And I'm referring to this idea, this Jones Act, um, that affects the people of Hawaii, and a lot of them don't even know it and don't understand it. So if you wouldn't mind, because I know you've done some work in this area, why don't you tell us what the Jones Act is, how it hurts um, the people of Hawaii, and what you think needs to be done about it? Very good point, uh, Mark. Uh, I think it is often just draws a blank for most people when you say the Jones Act. And so I would like to maybe relabel it uh, uh, the the Matson Monopoly Law, except it isn't just Matson. There are a few others uh, that benefit by it. But what it is, it's a law that, that started in, in 1920, basically saying that any ship that carries cargo from one American port to another American port has to be on a ship that was built in America, carries an American flag. Three quarters of it has to be American, well, American crew. No, I think it's uh, three quarters of it has to be American ownership and a, a fully uh, American crew. And, they, and of course, all of these things add enormously to the cost. The purpose of it originally was Wesley Jones, a congressman in uh, Washington state, wanted to prevent Canadian ships from carrying cargo from Washington state up to Alaska and back. And so by outlawing the use of uh, foreign ships, uh, then it, it gave uh, a privilege to certain American shipping. Well, over the years since then, the American-owned and built shipping has declined to a tiny fraction of what it was before, so that uh, Americans in Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico, and all around the coastline and the inland waterways of the United States have to use very expensive ships. By very expensive, I mean there's only uh, three uh, uh, shipyards that build ocean-going vessels in the United States anymore. Uh, and they build a couple of them a year, but whereas hundreds are being built in South Korea and in Japan and China. And uh, Americans just simply can't use those uh, other ships. So the American ships are five times more expensive just to build. And then the crew is about three times more expensive to hire. So that means that, uh, and they, they say, well, it's for a national security purpose. Therefore, we constantly guarantee business for these shipyards in the United States which happens to be not really American-owned. Two of those three um, uh, shipyards are owned by foreign companies, one Norwegian, one Singaporean. And, um, and so they're really talking about, well, a demand for the labor in those shipyards. Well, this is a form of protectionism. And I like thinking of how Henry George characterized protectionism in all of its forms, does to your own nation in peacetime what the enemy would do to you in wartime. The first thing that a country would want to do to its enemy in wartime was to be cut off its shipping. That's what the British and the Germans tried to do, each other, do to each other during World War I and II. It's what the North did to the South during the Civil War. You want to cut off the shipping. And that's essentially what this law has done, is cut off uh, American businesses from, from, doing, uh, from using uh, ships that could most effectively carry their cargoes around the world. Well, that falls is a very heavy burden on Hawaii and Alaska, especially because they don't have the alternatives in railroad and trucking transportation and raises the cost by maybe as much as $2,000 per 
uh, per household in, in Hawaii every year, but I guess that's a conservative estimate. And it's though very ironic because at the same time that we have this law supposedly to protect American national security, the burden falls very heavily on the 2% of the population in Hawaii and Alaska. If it was really for national security, it should be uh, a cost borne um, equally across the country. Uh, and then also it disregards the fact that we now have alliances with Japan and South Korea. They produce hundreds of ships and we have uh, natural, we have military defense alliances to protect them. We have soldiers stationed there by the thousands in those countries. And yet America doesn't trust them enough to, to supply the shipping uh, if we should happen to go to war. Uh, so it's, it's uh, a really uh, folly, uh, illogical, but it serves to provide uh, a huge barrier to entry to a few American shipping companies like Matson and Pasha that um, have Jones Act ships and they just don't want competition uh, to interfere. And yet Matson itself has a huge amount of their profits they get from non-Jones Act uh, cargo transportation between, let's say, China and uh, Guam. That's where their biggest profits are coming from. And yet it's very hard to enter into the Hawaii U.S. market in competition with them because they're the only ones with the very expensive Jones Act ships. And ironically, it throws out of business a lot of American companies. Uh, I think that the sugar industry probably went out of business uh, in Hawaii because they couldn't compete with, let's say, Philippine sugar that has to travel twice as far at half the price of transportation because they can use non-Jones Act ships. We've recently seen this uh, shutdown of the Colonial Pipeline carrying cart and carrying gasoline from the Texas to the East Coast, um, and and it would be an easy alternative to just go to ships uh, to carry that cargo, but they non-Jones Act ships can't carry them, and American Jones Act ships are too expensive. It costs three times as much to send oil and gas, let's say, from um, the Gulf Coast in Galveston, off the coast of uh, uh, Texas. It costs three times as much to send it to New York as it costs to send it further to Canada. And so it it, it really drives uh, American business out of the way and provides an enormous advantage for truckers and railroads and all on the mainland because they don't have to compete against shipping which would be a tremendous benefit to lowering the costs of our businesses to our consumers. And it would lower the pollution, lower the damage on the highways, lower our uh, traffic and congestion and the deaths on the highways if we were allowing ocean-going shipping um, in international competition instead of um, this protected shipping. Boy, that's horrible. That <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. So walk me through this. So if, if I'm in Hawaii and I'm ordering goods from, say, Japan, uh, that ship from Japan can't sail directly to Hawaii, right? No, from Japan it can come to Hawaii and unload. So we can we can buy things from Japan, but that ship, as long as it's here, can't pick up cargo in Hawaii and then take it to Los Angeles. So actually, the way this works is there may be a ship that goes from Japan to Los Angeles full, because America is buying a lot of products from Japan, but then to go back it. If it goes from Los Angeles to Hawaii empty, it can't carry a cargo to unload from Los Angeles to Hawaii. Uh, they can they can travel to Hawaii, but they can't take cargo from one to another. And so they so would. They, I first. Could I they first take cargo from? Could they take cargo from Hawaii back to Japan? Oh yeah, yeah. But we don't have very much. Uh, Right, right. So it's it's really just from leaving from an American port going to another American port. That's right. That's right. I first learned about this when I was living up in Alaska. There was an Alaska Lumber and Pulp Company up in Sitka, Alaska, and they uh, produced a lot of pulp. And I said, where do you sell this? I said, well, they said, well, we sell it in Seattle. Oh, so you just ship it down the coastline. No, no, no. It's too expensive to put on a Jones Act ship to send it from one American port to right down the coast to uh, another American port. Instead, they send it over to Tokyo and then back to Seattle because it's cheaper on a foreign ship than to send it oh right down the coast. Oh, my God. Wow. Of course, that, that drove out of business the Alaska Lumber and Pulp Company in the United States, 
and gave all the business to the British Columbia uh, pulp mill that uh, that didn't have that restraint restriction. Boy, you did... find that a, a cruise ship that wanted to come to Hawaii couldn't go from one island to, to the next with those two ports. Instead, it had to go a thousand miles south to Kiribati, a foreign island, before it could go up to the next island in the Hawaiian island chain. So you're saying even a a uh, pleasure cruise ship, like a carnival cruise, can't go from island to island? That's right. That's right. Except they did get, you know, with a massive campaign contributions to the senators from Hawaii, they got an exception for one cruise line ship. Then they got an exception. And it wasn't built in America, but uh, uh, with this massive campaign contributions, uh, they were a, they, they allowed them an exception. But other ships, if they want to come to Hawaii and go from island to island, well, I mean, even to go from Hawaii, they can't go, uh, a foreign ship can't go from Hawaii to Los Angeles directly. They have to go down to either to Mexico first as a as a uh, interim point or up to Canada first. Wow. Which means even they fly cattle from Hawaii to uh, the West Coast because it's cheaper to fly the cattle on a 747 <laughs> jet than to put it on a, on a, one of these expensive ships. Wow. Boy, that's incredible. Now, we can put this in the category of crony capitalism, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And so this is, you know, I talk about this in my book. Um, And, you know, it's it's unfortunate that the people who attack capitalism are constantly attacking things like crony capitalism, which is completely different, right? Crony capitalism violates the rule because when I say the rule, I'm talking about the live and let live rule, the rule that says you can't use force or fraud or coercion or create substantial risk. So in this case, really they're using coercion, right? They're saying, look, if you if you take a ship that's that's a foreign ship and you go from an American port to another American port, peacefully even, even invited and uh, because you've got a valid contract with somebody, we're going to do something to you. We're going to fine you and pound your ship or something like that. So, um, and of course, this distorts the market, right? I mean, as you can, as you've just laid out, it puts industries out of business. It raises the price of products all over the place for people who don't even realize they're being ripped off by regulation, by crony capitalism. Some people are artificially making too much money, and some people are artificially paying too much money. Exactly, and I think that it's. Uh noticeable the, the the hypocrisy of the politicians. They talk about the freedom of the seas. I remember when George Bush Sr. sent the American Navy to the Persian Gulf to guarantee the freedom of the seas. And uh, just last week, uh, President Biden said uh, at his speech to the Coast Guard, we, need, we value the freedom of the seas because he's talking about the South China Sea. So I say, if you really believe in freedom of the seas, then allow people in Hawaii to choose whatever ship they want to, t- to send something to Los Angeles, but they don't believe it consistently. Can you tell us the arguments on the other side of this issue? I mean, other than just, I mean, is is they have to present something to the public. My, my, my guess is that this has maybe been challenged before, and there's been uh, defenders of the Jones Act. W- what, what arguments are there in defense sure. of this that, uh, that have been made? Yeah, and I'll be on a debate at the Freedom Fest in South Dakota this uh, summer with uh, some shippers that will make these arguments. They say, well, first and foremost, the object is always set as for national security. But even the U.S. Navy complains that the, that, okay, so think about it this way, saying what Henry George says, a protectionism like this does to your own nation in peacetime what the enemy would do to you in wartime. They say, oh, we need to guarantee that there's a, a vital shipyard building business that can always have demand for their ships. Well, it has become so uncompetitive on the world market that you know, the American shipbuilding industry has collapsed basically to a, a very few, three, three sh- ocean-going shipbuilding uh, ventures now. And uh, so there's almost nothing left. But they say, well, to guarantee that there's demand for their ships, we have to prohibit Americans from choosing anything else. Uh, so the consequence has been that they've crippled the economy of the United States to service this one particular sector of the economy, this one particular labor union and uh, and shipyard uh, companies. And they're not even American. Two of them, as I mentioned, are foreign-owned foreign, uh, uh, shipyards. Uh, so uh, let's see, what else? Uh, they say, oh, well, they won't be safe. Well, but that's, that's not true because uh, 
foreign ships can come into any American port. They always do. So there's no difference in that. Just allowing them to carry cargo from from Los Angeles to Hawaii would be the uh, the difference. Uh, let's see what else are they say. It um, won't be safe. In, in, in other words, that the foreign ship will sail away back to their own country with our goods without making the delivery to the other American state. No, they say that a, a ship that comes into a, a a harbor or port, well, they you know they, they often kind of give this impression that an American ship is is uh, is safer than a foreign ship, but it doesn't prevent a foreign ship from coming into American port with goods from another country. It just prevents them from coming into an American port from another American port. Yeah, it doesn't make any. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. Safer in what way? Like if they're worried about disease or something like that, that can still be carried in, right? uh, Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's no difference in in this. Um, Also, the uh, the um, well, let's see here. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm. I do a blank. I think uh, in terms of what what it is that they're arguing on this. It seems, but, but here's the thing: the, the foreign-born ships, uh, the foreign-made ships in South Korea and Japan, our allies, are state of the art. They are the they are huge. They are very efficient. They're much more fuel efficient, much more environmentally uh, sensitive than the old Jones Act ships that, on average, are 20 years older. Uh, like the El Faro that sank because it, it, it was old and, and gave out out in the in the uh, Caribbean, and the uh, Exxon Valdez was a Jones Act ship that uh, had all kinds of trouble. Just having a it say that it was made in America doesn't make its situation any safer. Actually, it makes it more risky because they tend to be much older ships, much more run down, much more fuel inefficient, environmentally uh, disastrous than the rest. And there's no reason for them to compete in the market because they don't have to compete in the market, right? So why worry that's, about making the right. best ship in any event? It could be any ship. They have to use your ship. That's right. And you could say the same thing about everything where you say, well, we're to protect America. We can't allow uh, foreigners to make uh, our automobiles. Every car in America has to be made by an American automobile company in America. Well, <laughs> what would that do to uh, the whole I mean, we, even we, you know, we, we buy airplanes in a competitive environment. We buy automobiles in a competitive environment. The competition is good. It's healthy. It, it uh, vitalizes us and it makes our economy so much more um, uh, vital because of the competition. If we cut off the competition in any one of these areas, we'd be crippling ourselves. You know, I'm curious, has there been or do you know if there have been some serious challenges to the Jones Act or no? I'm sure there must have been in all this time. Well, yeah, but uh, remember that law and legislation is often designed to um, provide favors to the campaign contributors, not to provide benefits for the general public. Right. I mean, that's why, why I've been against farm subsidies for years. It doesn't benefit the American consumer to have high prices for food at very, very enormous taxpayer expense. It benefits the special interest farmers that lobby and contribute to that. Same thing with the shipping companies. You look at the campaign contributions, they pour in. And so even in Hawaii, that is hurt the most by the Jones Act, Matson and these other uh, shipping companies pour the campaign contributions into our own congressmen and senators, so they they become the strongest advocates of this protectionism, which hurts the population in their states the most. Wow. And, uh, you know, I just follow the money. Yeah. And the average person probably isn't aware. Like, Do you have any idea what percentage of people who live in Hawaii have in their head that I'm paying more money for these goods as a result of the Jones Act? That's the thing. When you go around the street and you ask, and I really haven't done a scientific survey, but my guess is that if you surveyed 100 people on the street just with a simple question, what do you think of the Jones Act? They'd say, huh? What's the Jones Act? 99% of them would say they have no idea what the Jones Act is. I think it sounds sort of like, uh, uh, you know, Mother Jones and and Apple Pie. Yeah, and this is some of the problems with the current system we have, right? Because in a sense, it may be rational 
for each individual to say, look, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of my time to try to, uh, you know, get rid of the Jones Act when I pay, let's just say, okay, it's $2,000 a year. Uh, I don't want to spend more more than $2,000 worth of money or my time trying to get this thing fixed because it's just not worth that much. I remember many years ago, we had an economist speaking for us at the Freedom Summit. In fact, Don Bordreau, who's going to speak uh, very soon on uh, on the Peace Radicals podcast. He's, he's a guest and he's agreed to come on. And he gave a little talk about sugar subsidies and uh, how much money that the sugar industry gives to politicians uh, for these subsidies. And then how little, just a small amount, it, it costs each person extra uh, they, they have to pay in sugar for this. And it's just not really worth the time or effort of any one person to get involved. And it's not worth the politician's effort to do anything against the sugar lobby because they're getting all this money. It's just this endless racket that continues to go and go and go. And we're not just getting screwed as a result of the Jones Act or the sugar subsidies. There's these same problems in so many different sectors of the economy. I mean, crony capitalism really is a problem. See, this and is I think the- that yeah, this is what most people think of when they think of a lot of people who on the left, when they talk about capitalism, this is what they associate with capitalism, right? And we, we need to do a better job of differentiating between those two things. Yeah, there's no question about that. They point to crony capitalism and corporatism, as they call it, and say, look, here are all these horrible problems. Well, we agree with that. The problem isn't really um, – the problem isn't capitalism or socialism. The problem is violating the rule. People should be free to do what they want as long as they don't violate the rule, violate the rights of other people. And so that includes trading. I and mean, if you want to trade uh, with another person in another country and they, they're going to send their ship to deliver deliver the goods and it's going to go from a foreign port uh, to a port that's willing to accept you uh, here in Hawaii or anywhere else. That's between the parties. What should this have to do with anybody else? It's just completely, it's a racket and we're all victims of this economically speaking. And because people are busy pursuing their own interests and, and I don't fault them for that, they're unaware of how they're being ripped off by the system of crony capitalism. Yes, you're right. And in a way, it would be you might build a coalition against these things if you could pull together different interest groups. For example, people are concerned in Hawaii about low-cost housing, you know, and it's very expensive to, to build houses. Well, what if you could cut the cost in half for bringing timber in for for construction? Or what if you could actually it's it's illegal to bring. I mean, it, it, uh, they don't have a natural gas. Jones Act ship that could bring in liquefied natural gas, which would be much cheaper as a fuel source here, and it would be much uh, um, more environmentally um, sensitive because it uh, you know produces uh, a lot less carbon. You know, natural gas is fantastic, but there's no Jones Act ship that can that can bring that stuff in. So instead, they they import the oil from uh, uh, from Indonesia. Well, you could you would think well. Isn't there a, 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 a coalition you could get together of, let's say, the natural gas industry uh, and the environmentalists who would say, well, there's tremendous thing to be gained here. We don't lower our costs. We'd be more environmentally profe- uh, efficient and we'd be able to uh, benefit uh, other American industries uh, uh, by just allowing competition with the. But it only comes about like when there's a disaster, like a hurricane or this uh, collapse of the colonial. Uh, colonial pipeline to be, to give a waiver for a week or two to the Jones Act. And they do pass a waiver for a week or two, uh, but it never hangs around because the, the, the lobbying interest, like you say, is concentrated and their power is very strong versus the disuse interest of consumers who only see um, you know, a pennies uh, on each item. This sounds very similar to arguments that were being made during the pandemic, right? Like, what do you mean? We don't make PPE here anymore. We have to import it from another country. And uh, people are very worried about this argument that, hey, we're outsourcing our manufacturing to other countries. And in an emergency, we're not able uh, to make it here. What, how do you respond to those types of arguments as an economist? Well, those are... <laughs> You would think, no-brainers, it'd be real easy to say, if sending sugar... Now, you know, Hawaii, when I first came here, had 80 sugar plantations. Now it has zero. 
They were all gone out of business, even with massive sugar protections, you know, quotas and so on that shielded the sugar industry from foreign competition. And yet um, the, the Hawaii sugar industry is gone because it was so expensive to send their final product to California. Of course, the, the Louisiana producer and the Florida producer of sugar loved it. It was a way of them getting rid of the Hawaii competition. Right. Uh, and uh, and even the Philippines could send sugar half the price of uh, Hawaii sugar. And But, you know, the unions stick together. They, they Somehow the longshoremen think that their uh, union is benefited if there's a, a protection for Matson. Whereas, in fact, if there was a whole lot more shipping coming into Honolulu Harbor, Longshoremen would have a lot more work and a lot more demand for their services if they want more work. <laughs> yeah, that's another question. So, yeah, and I think this is just a little microcosm, you know, of many, many other industries that are suffering from the same types of problems. And as we up it a notch, and I talk about this in my book as well, uh, the reason that the United States Supreme Court allows this stuff to happen is because they they say these only affect sort of property rights or economic interests. And uh, if it's an economic or property rights interest, then the court looks at it and they give it something called minimum scrutiny. You know, so they'll say, well, you know, if Congress says this is, uh, you know, for national defense or some important purpose, who are we to look uh, and determine whether or not that claim is a legitimate claim? We're just the Supreme Court and uh, the legislature. Uh, Congress is filled with brilliant people and uh, they get to make these kinds of decisions. And if that's what they say, then we accept it. And I think this was a giant mistake that our Supreme Court made. This is a change back in 1937, because before 1937, the Supreme Court would have looked at this and said, okay, look, um, you guys are infringing on liberty of other companies uh, to bring foreign ships and, um, and to do what they want. And so you've got to justify this. And so just because you say it's for national defense, prove it. And so, but that's gone away. And and we refer to this and sometimes as the pre or the Lochner era court or substantive due process. And it's something I'm a fan of. And um, people don't understand how our Supreme Court, which is referred to as the watchdog of the legislature, just for this reason in the Federalist Papers, uh, has now become really what I'd refer to as the lapdog of the legislature. They have, in my opinion, let us down. They should be striking down these kinds of crazy laws like the Jones Act, like we're talking about today. But instead, they defer to Congress. And because the average person isn't educated and isn't aware and doesn't uh, is directly believe they're affected by these, they aren't, they're not interested in this. And so things continue to roll. This is one of the problems that the founders envisioned with democracy that we have, because if the majority of people aren't educated or don't care or not involved, then things keep rolling. Let's talk about that average person, because something we need to do, something the freedom movement needs to focus on, something we really need to be very, very hyper aware of in moving forward the live and let live movement is we've got to do a better job of communicating the difference here between the the type of crony capitalism that we've been talking about with the Jones Act and what true capitalism is. You got to ask the question, why why is there a growing movement especially among young people in our country right now for socialism, calling for socialism? Why is it that somebody like Lee Schooland who's finally able to uh, escape this communist socialist hellhole get to America only to find, um, you know, teenagers and, and young kids in, at college and everything like that crying for socialism and pushing for socialism. I think a lot of that has to do, it's it's easy to figure out the answer why, because all you got to do is listen to the demagogues in this type of an area like Bernie, the Bernie Sanders of the world or the folks on the far left who will point to exactly the type of cronyism that we've been talking about here, who can point to different types of crony capitalism and say, there you go, that's what capitalism gets you. I just think moving forward to get our, our friends on the left attuned to these types of concepts we've been talking about today, we've really got to do a better job communicating the differences here. I think the big misconception has come about through the education system. I was just looking at a a uh, young friend uh, of mine is has this home homeschool curriculum, um, 
then I was, she showed me, this is the part about economics. She says there's three economic systems. There's socialism where government owns everything and there's capitalism and, and where the government looks out for everybody. And then there's capitalism where everybody looks out for themselves. And then there's the mixed economy where the government steps in and, and makes things that makes sure that everything's run for everybody's true benefit. I mean, I think that's probably the, the misconception in across the board in many, many schools government schools and probably private schools uh, across the country that give this impression that government is a benevolent big brother who's looking out for the good benefits of everybody and everything they do is for your for the common good they don't ever see it as the as the way of corrupting the marketplace by turning uh, corrupting the, the the favors for one particular interest group at the, at the expense of others the crony capitalism so I'd say the education system is abysmal on pointing this stuff out. And that's why Jonathan Gullible and, and things like it have to be used to to get young people to challenge this uh, this notion of government as the as the benevolent big brother. And how are you finding this received in your economics classes with your students? Students love it. For one thing, it's not boring. And it's not wrong, in my opinion. And I think it's uh, it, it uh, the, the the students have a very very positive view of this book, and they hate textbooks. Main textbooks are are abysmal, and I I really don't use textbooks um, very much in class because I would challenge most of what they're saying. You know, most of the mainstream textbooks are um, they all give this image that, in fact, you know that that government intervention is for the public good. And I just, I just denied that. I'd say that the interventions always lead to negative consequences. But why is this? I talk about why is this, mm-hmm. Ken? Why, what is it about your fellow economists, many of them, who have bought into this? I don't know. Would you call it a Keynesian approach to economics? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, why? Also, why is it so popular? I had a friend, I had a friend over at the uh, University of Hawaii who told me that she applied for a job to teach economics, and she was told. Well, no, we, we've just hired a Marxist economist. And she says, well, how about if the next position that opens up? No, no, we're looking for another Marxist economist. They were that blunt about it. And I'm, you know, and, and the Marxist uh, and Keynesian point of view is that the government is the, is the great umpire that, that does things for the public good. Never seeing that the public choice school of thought says these People in government have their own self-interest that they're serving it all the time by, by using the power of force against one side or the other to reward their friends or punish their enemies uh, to gain, gain power in their own. And the government always succeeds because if, you, if the measure of success is that you have a bigger budget, and a bigger staff, by creating more and more problems, they are always increasing their budget and staff to solve the problem that they just created. You know, and so they're they're on a march to. That's why uh, Friedrich Hayek said, you know, the road to serfdom is is allowing government uh, control over anything because it just grows and takes over more and more with the justification of the public good. But what is it that's fueling the powers that be to say, I want to hire a Marxist economist? Government school, by its nature, I. Uh, has to justify its its own existence. You know, the use of force to tax everybody to pay for one. That's why I never work for government schools. But very few people have the same idea of uh, what they work for. I I won't work for a government school ever because they they force the consumers to pay for their salary, and I I consider it very dishonorable for somebody to do that. And yet that's what government does. So the once people are getting paid by taxation, they have to rationalize it to feel good about it, to feel uh, decent about taking taxpayers' money that they had no choice about paying. And then they justify it as, you know, well, I must, it must be for the public good because I'm, I'm a teacher now, regardless of whether they value my, my teaching, they have to attend and they have to pay for it. And well, so, the, I, I recommend a book, by the way, uh, Sheldon Richmond's book, Separating School and State, on the whole history of how a government took over the um, the education system and really, really perverted it. So, do you find this different? The attitude different at the private university that you teach at, Hawaii Pacific? It is much less 
um, oriented towards uh, towards government, much less. Uh, it's not not absent though. I mean, I'd still say probably uh, majority of uh, faculty, especially outside the College of Business, are much more oriented towards uh, left wing socialist uh, philosophy. Um, but it's not nearly as dogmatic and as presumptuous as it is at the government schools. But it exists because, after all, most of them got their education at government schools as well. Well, maybe you can do us a favor, Ken. Uh, Andy and I would like to speak to the most leftist, Marxist, woke uh, professor over there about the simple ideas underpinning live and let live. We need to know these types of things. We need to be able to communicate properly with our brothers and sisters on the left of the aisle, just like we need to be able to communicate properly with the people on the right of the aisle. And this is something that's always been yeah, so frustrating because it's like, it's it's one of those things. I mean, Lee's story is the perfect example. People flee these types of governments with and clutching to their life and are, are thankful every day that they were able to escape it. It's just the fact that it's now become more of a popularized position in the United States is troubling for so many reasons. Yeah, I and I do have somebody I could recommend. He invited me to speak to his political philosophy class. And even though he says he's very, very left wing and he's in the state legislature himself. Um, you know, he was an interesting guy to talk to, and so I'll I'll invite him and I'll connect you up. Yeah, and if you don't want to take him up on his invite, I'd love to go talk to his students. <laughs> no, I did I did speak to his students last last month. Uh, so I mean, I know he's uh, he's an amenable guy, even though he he says he's very very left wing. But I you know I think that he would be he would enjoy that uh, that kind of interaction with you. You know. Yeah, that'd be a fun conversation. With we'd look forward to having it with him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I'd say it's interesting that you you made a point that that's why so many people are coming to this country because they envision it as being the place of freedom. I mean, that's what my wife said when she first came here. Well, I thought this was a you know going to be the the, the free market. And then she discovered all of these same kind of uh, talks and so on uh, that that she heard during the Cultural Revolution about how you know, great the state is, you know, that. And I am very much troubled by the fact that Americans uh, have become so insular in terms of not wanting to welcome these people who are very eager to vote with their feet and leave behind tyranny and go to a place where there's more freedom. And I, I, so there are a lot of people who will welcome them as there have been in American history, but there's also, um, sadly, uh, and always a, a, a case of how many people have been were just afraid of the competition by by race or by religion or by uh, employment uh, of a newcomer coming. I was just listening to a book called On the Home Front about how Americans did not accept the mass numbers of refugees during World War II, and they they were. You know, they can say, well, we're all in favor of uh, the Jews and the Poles and the Catholics trying to um, get away from tyranny, but don't let them in. Mm-hmm. And our, our quota system was just horrendous in its consequence of not allowing people to escape tyranny. Yeah, I know you've done a lot of thinking in the immigration area as well. Um, but, you know, one of the things that uh, bothers me about immigration is there are some, I think, good arguments on the other side, on, on the side that you're sort of poking fun at, because some people who I've spoken to who are anti-immigration say, look, I don't have any problem with people coming here uh, or any of this. I'm not worried about competition or any of that. What bothers me is that when they come here, because of the current state of affairs, I got to support them. And I don't want to be forced to support other people, um, basically the welfare state. What do you think about this argument? The Democrats and Republicans have all supported the welfare state. It isn't that the welfare state wasn't caused by an immigrant coming in. The welfare state was created by the Democrats and Republicans. I noticed that year after year, even though they all complain about the welfare state, they still vote for it. You know, whether it's Trump or Biden, they all sign off on increasing role of the welfare state. So, you know, if the welfare state disappeared as it should, it should disappear for immigrants as well as for the 
uh, Americans. You know, it shouldn't, of it shouldn't exist where you compel people to pay for other people. We're so in you agree- can't blame that on the immigrants. No, we're in total agreement there. But my point was about not the Republicans and the Democrats. The average person who says, I would welcome them, but I don't want to have to pay for them when they show up. I mean, I, I find this as a legitimate argument. Well, the same argument could, could be given for not allowing someone to have children. Oh, why? Why should that woman be allowed to have a child? Because, I mean, when she's born, I mean, we're all going to have to be taking care of that child through schools and, and hospitals and everything through the welfare state. No, we got to sew up her womb so she can't have more children. Yeah. <laughs> we would never say that. Right. I mean, there's, right. there's 18 years of dependency for a newborn child, whereas a, an immigrant already to work. In fact, probably going to work harder than them. <laughs> yeah, these are some of the problems and distortions that come up when you confuse legal questions with moral questions, right? I mean, the moral questions of should we help people who need our help? I think the answer is yes, as a moral matter, but not as a legal matter, right? And so when you conflate the two ideas, um, people are going to say, I think with some justification, uh, I don't want to have to pay for immigrants or, as you point out, even people who are citizens. There are legitimate arguments there. So I mean, the, really the only solution to this situation is the one that I believe we're offering up with the live and let live movement. It's the only way out. If we're going to put morality into the law, then uh, everybody's going to be fighting about whose morality should prevail. That'll be a that'll exactly. be a constant position until the end of time because we're never all going to agree on morality. The the only way out of this is to say, I know, let's not put our morality in the law and then just keep the law very basic and just confine it to the live and let live rule. No force, no fraud, no coercion. Don't do things that put people at substantial risks. And then we can all get along with our lives and both define and pursue our happiness in any way we think is best. It seems like a much better uh, course to chart. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right that that may be the way out. When people realize, okay, on this issue, for example, there are inviters and there are excluders, people who don't want uh, to deal with or associate with immigrants. And there are people who want them. They, they invite them. They want to hire them and work with them. And uh, well, at any rate, both sides should be allowed their own path yeah. rather than assuming that, that when one side gets control of the, of the governmental structure, they get to impose it on the other side. And that imposition is what you're trying to avoid with the living principle. Yes, both could be happy. Those people who say, I don't want anything to do with immigrants for good reasons or bad reasons or whatever reasons, they shouldn't be forced to have anything to do with anybody they don't want to have anything to do, whether they're immigrants or citizens, right? And for those who say, look, I want to invite people to come in and work in my factory and do this and that and the next thing, they should be accommodated as well. Why why should we should be able to, on this issue, as many issues both have our cake and eat our cake to to use a uh, time worn um sort of a an example but um i think we can have both things we can both define and pursue our happiness if we just recognize that there's a path forward that we call the live and let live rule the live and let live principle uh, that's all kind of intertwined up with the live and let live movement so you know if you've been listening to this podcast and you like some of the things you heard you're you're a fan of freedom and you're a fan of peace and you recognize that you don't get to impose your morality on other people you can try to persuade people but it's not right uh, to force your morality on other people because guess what they're going to want to enforce their morality on you if you're tired of that same uh, rat race and run around that gets us nowhere, uh, but all paying more for less and having less freedom and liberty and sort of always fighting with each other in this sort of um, Hobbesian world where everybody's at war with everybody else. There's a way out. It's called live and let live. And if we could get our heads around this, I think uh, other than the people who we would call thugs who like to control other people, everybody else would live better. Exactly. You're so right, Mark. And I think that this is a good path out. And with that, gentlemen, we're right out of time, and I want to uh, plug uh, Ken Schoolin's work. We've been talking to Professor Ken Schoolin, who is a uh, economics professor at Hawaii Pacific University. He has uh, he's a published author, several excellent books, Adventures of Jonathan Gullible. Check it out. He's got articles. Ken, do you have a website or any contact you want to plug? Where can our, our listeners find your work? 
Sure. JonathanGullible.com. Thank you very much for mentioning that. JonathanGullible.com has uh, all my stuff and contact information. Love it. Well, this has been Attorney Andrew Markintel and Attorney Mark J. Victor. And if you want to get a hold of us, Andy at AttorneysForFreedom.com, Mark, M-A-R-C, at AttorneysForFreedom.com. We want to hear from you guys. Send us your questions. Do you disagree with us? Do you identify with socialism? Are you uh, the wokest, most left person that we've ever met in our entire lives? Love it. We want to hear from you. We want to talk to you. We want to engage in a dialogue. We want to uh, share our thoughts on Live and Let Live and understand your worldview as well. It's through dialogue and open conversation like this that we can all move forward as a species. We want to get more of this dialogue. We want to get people talking, and we want to talk about these heavy and difficult concepts and come to some common ground. Uh, Check out liveandletlive.org for this podcast and tons of other information about the movement. Uh, Mark's got a book coming out soon. Uh, all about Live and Let Live, and we can't wait to unleash it on the world. This is our last audio-only podcast. On the next podcast, which will be recorded next week, we will be here in our brand-new, awesome-looking studio, and we can't wait to to, uh, launch it and uh, work out the bugs with you guys and uh, get the logistics all figured out. It's a lovely studio. Our staff did a fantastic job, and we can't uh, wait to see and be seen by you guys next week. Mark, any final thoughts? Uh, No, just uh, excited about everything, the huge task that lays ahead of us. And if you listen to the show, I would urge you, get involved. Uh, Help be part of the solution. Uh, It's great that you listen to the Peace Radicals podcast, but spread it around if you can. Send around the website, liveandletlive.org, and uh, let's do this thing together. We need need all hands on deck. We got to get this done, and we got to get it done urgently. Once again, thanks to Professor Ken School, and this has been Attorney Andy Markintel and Attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the Peace Radicals. Until next time, peace. peace.